Work-life balance is something we all struggle with in our line of work, and especially with the people who listen to this podcast. For those of you who enjoy getting away by spending some time on the lake, casting a line, our podcast sponsor is for you. Cope's Tackle and Rod Shop has been in business since 2015 and carries all of your fishing needs. They're veteran-owned and are proud supporters of Cato and our listeners of the Cato Podcast. Check out their website at tackleandrod.com, enter discount code Cato at checkout, and get 10% off your purchase and get free shipping on anything over $75. Cato is a nonprofit organization that exists to serve law enforcement so they can train their departments and make their communities safer. One of the ways we do this is through support from businesses like Cope, Stackle, and Rod. So consider supporting businesses that support us. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode of the Cato Podcast, I sit down with Cato Cadre members Travis Norton, Chris Jenny, and special guest Kevin Sear of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. We met Kevin recently during the Cato SWAT Commander School. He has a lot of experience and is a very thoughtful and methodical tactician. And of course, he is always polite. As our nation mourns the lives that were taken from us in Uvalde, we thought it was appropriate to have a discussion on what history has taught us about active shooters, training, and decision-making during these horrific events. This is not intended as a Uvalde debrief or after action. I believe that would be premature. That being said, I'm sure that many of these points also applied there as history is the repository of all lessons. We have a few related topics on the schedule, so this won't be the last conversation related to active shooter response. It is not intended to be the end all of all active shooter discussions, but I hope it creates some conversations and can help us better prepare for when this problem arrives at our communities. Thank you, all three of you, for being here with me. And I've asked Travis, uh, Chris, and Kevin to join us to have a kind of panel discussion about active shooter response. And right now, uh, everyone's talking about Avaldi, uh, and uh, we we feel like the the facts all aren't out, so we're not really trying to address Avaldi tonight. But we we want to talk about the history of active shooter response. We want to talk about the stats, and then some of the training as it's evolved since Columbine, and then some of the decision making that leaders have to make that I don't know that we're really addressing very well in training. So uh, for that being said, thank you, gentlemen, for being here. You know, we could, we could pick a scenario from history, and we could talk about any one of these mass casualty events, and they have very similar themes and very similar problems, some of which are very easy to solve, and we continue not to solve them. So I, I think I'll start off the conversation with Travis and talk a little bit about your thesis uh, back in 2018 and some of the stats you found then that historically, I think several of them were still, we're still doing wrong to this day. Yeah. So I studied about 15 after action reports, all the ones that are open source, publicly available, most of them from police foundation. The one thing, and I know this isn't going to be a surprise to anybody is that over 90% of these, and these were not just, there was a couple that weren't active shooter in the traditional sense. Um, you could talk, you know, Oakland's in there. And I've also got the Stockton incident with the uh, mobile active shooter problem that they had with hostages. But over 90% of them have leadership incident command issues. And I think, you know, those of us that have been responding to critical incidents for many, many years can attest to the fact that leadership or some type of incident command issue is always 
a problem or a challenge for simply because these are come as you are parties, right? We're showing up with whoever's on duty with whatever equipment they're bringing to the table. And that causes us to not have our A players on the ground when something happens. The next one is inappropriate self-deployment. There's a lot to unpack with inappropriate self-deployment, but I will tell you that that is also, in my opinion, a leadership issue. You can solve inappropriate self-deployment simply by showing some leadership. The other one's parking and everybody always says, well, why is parking such a big deal? Well, inappropriate or indiscriminate parking is a problem simply because if you're parking your cars in the way, you're not gonna be able to let your SWAT teams, your tactical teams or your EMS and ambulances get access to the crisis site. The next is communication. And while some of that focuses on interoperability, the most of it is people talking on the radio too much. And not holding that, that that traffic for what needs to be put out. I will say, and this is just you know an opinion of mine that, and I call these the big four, but I, I think my that inappropriate self-deployment, indiscriminate parking, and your communication issues are absolutely a leadership problem. I and mean, if you as a patrol supervisor are not talking about those, and handling them on the front end, what you're going to have is self-induced friction. And that just adds complexity to our problem that really we should be talking about almost daily. I mean, think about it. How do we solve parking? You talk, what is, what's the biggest thing we do to violate parking? Well, we park in front of the fire hydrant, park in the way of fire. Well, that's something that can be solved before the big crisis happens. So uh, just just some things to keep in mind as we get the as we get the discussion started. Yeah, thanks. Because those a lot of those you know indiscriminate parking technically is easy to solve, but you don't get to pick when you're going to one of these events, and you may respond to it and not know that that's the event that you're going to. And so, uh, as as cops and deputies, we park where we want because we're the police, we're the the sheriff's office, we're parole, we're whoever, and but you may never make it back to your car again. So that seems to be a, an easy problem to fix. Uh, Self-deployment, a great solution. Get on their radio, declare yourself the incident commander. Anyone not actively engaged with the suspect will stand by for roll call and start slowing that down, designate staging areas, staging officers, that kind of thing. But again, all these are pre-event. Go ahead, Trav. All these are pre-event things you need to deal with. Let me just touch on the inappropriate, the, uh, inappropriate self-deployment again. This will just take a minute here. But one of the things that when I was a watch commander that, that I did with, self, with the inappropriate self-deployment is we had a, an officer involved shooting at, uh, at the fairgrounds, which is about I don't know, 10, 15 miles south of my jurisdiction. And what do we, as cops, we always want to respond whether or not we're needed at all. We want to go. And one of the ways or one of the things that I did was they had an officer involved shooting and all the officers wanted to go down there. Well, I told the on-duty sergeant, take four cops and go park as close as you can get without actually being in the way of the problem. And that's one way to get that emotional piece where they, hey, they actually feel like they're helping, but they're not getting in the way of the problem. And it's just a, a tool that I've used with some success in the past that I, that I think is, is important for everybody to hear. Kevin, anything you guys do uh, in your, you know, your practice or your, uh, in your training to kind of help that? No, it's much the same. And when I think about what are the causal factors of this, um, 
it makes me think that, you know, a lot of policing is, is uh, solitary and not even supervised, right? Like you guys go to, you go to your own call, you know, the sergeant's not even really paying attention. You might read your report. So you go from, you go from solitary, not supervised. And then when the complexity of the incident increases, you go to a cooperative effort and it's not led, it's just cooperative. So, you know, the four of us are still working solitarily, but we're just doing it in a cooperative manner. Then when you keep advancing on, on the complexity of incidents, now you're into an active shooter or an active threat situation. It's like, that doesn't work anymore. We still try to make it work, but it doesn't work. And we fail to recognize that transition point to now we need a command and control structure. And I just don't think cops do that super well. Like we do solitary well, we do cooperative and eh, not bad. Uh, command and control, not our, not our strongest suit. And that's why fire is so good at incident command because they work together. Hush your so mouth. Much. You hush your mouth. <laughs> no, you're right. They do great at incident command, but they do horrible at swarming, right? You don't, you don't see them unless I'd say Chris and I up here in our wildfires that we get every year, we have seen some swarming, but there's still a very structured swarming by unit that they do, you know, and, and cops don't do that. We act independently. You're right. And then when we try to build that structure behind it, there's a, there's a lag time and, and some of that friction for sure. And what, and um, just remember incident command doesn't answer your tactical problem. It simply gives you structure. That's it. It doesn't solve whatever adversarial problem you have going on. It's a tool for organizing information. Someone still has to make a decision and give a direction for sure. So when we talk about active shooter, there's some other things that uh, patrol handles, right? We're talking about a patrol problem, generally speaking. Patrols are first responders, whether you're you know, rural or in the city. And then hopefully some people get there with some additional training and tools to help you out. But very often, and uh, Orlando is probably the most dramatic case in recent history that I can think of, we talk about breaching problems. And we talk about the expense of outfitting patrol with breaching equipment, providing training for breaching equipment. And I know it's a hot topic right now, but what are some models that you've seen, you know, Kevin's throughout Canada, Travis, you travel throughout uh, America. Chris and I travel in the United States and outside the United States, which is often called the Bay Area. And so we've seen a variety of models, usually restricted by funding. Uh, you go up to Mendocino County, uh, you go up to Humboldt County, you go up to Northwest kind of California, and, and you'll see some deputies that actually drive around with chainsaws because of rural areas, fallen trees, storms, but also because there's a certain percentage of society up there that likes to fell trees to keep the deputies from getting to where they need to go. And so they just go buy their own chainsaws and that's a breaching deal for them. Uh, we've seen areas up in marijuana where they're actually building trenches like moats because they know the bearcats can't drive over the rickety old bridges, but their trucks can. And so they're, they're definitely fortifying their structures and making it difficult to breach these areas. But let's talk about uh, some of the solutions that you've seen do for patrol, for patrol being able to breach. So one of markets, one of the things uh, I've seen across, just teaching across the country, because especially when I do the critical incident uh, instruction, one of the, one of the questions I always ask is, is, Hey, what are you guys doing for patrol breaching program? And 
I get a lot. I, I would say 80% don't have any type of breaching program. Uh, they might have some manual tools that they might have trained on in the last few years. There's definitely not anything other than manual tools. And I won't name other, not one favor any manufacturers, but we know what those tools are that are very expensive and that will get us pretty much into anything. But that's that's pretty much what I see. Uh, even here in California, some of that's the same. You guys would be able to speak to that a little better than I do. Even my agency, we're lucky to train once a year on manual tools. And most of those tools are not being used for metal on metal doors. We're just prying a screen open and hitting the door for you know, CPR call or something like that. So my suggestion is you have something better than manual tools in all your supervisor cars and that you have manual tools in every single patrol vehicle, but that is completely cost prohibitive a lot of times. I think the uh, manual toolkit's pretty common, at least in supervisor cars. Um, and then uh, I, I know uh, for some agencies in the region up here, added it to the SRO cars. Because uh, one of the things is you know, frequently SRO cars are, are parked in front of the school somewhere. So if there's an incident, uh, officers know they can hit that uh, vehicle, grab some tools um, and, and be able to uh, uh, assist you know, that, you know, as a second team or the third team, if there was an incident at, uh, at a school, but very few other tools beyond that. And oftentimes it's like, we'll just call the fire department for whatever uh, we need, but you lose sight of the objective with the stopping the killing and stopping the dying there. Yeah. What you guys are describing is exactly what we see up here in Canada as well. And of course our apathy is buoyed by the fact that we just, we don't have the same number of active threats like you know we see a lot of like family annihilation type calls would be our, our mass killings are almost always of that category it's very very rare that we have anything outside of that envelope um and because of that yeah we you know we're on our heels on this issue for sure and i think that even if they do have tools the training is what's lacking i mean even i mean let's think about what what would you do for a breaching day for patrol how long does that last a couple hours how many hits is somebody really going to get or, you know, how many times are they going to pry something open and really learn how to do that? And then you hit something very, very fortified. You're running into some serious issues. And that's if they're lucky. I think the more common model is you got the former NARC, uh, you know, former detective, former SWAT guy who's rotated up to patrol or the current SWAT guy who's the one that's tasked with doing that. You know, somebody who's got a few dozen search warrants under their belt. It's like, hey, give it to that guy. Or they may even be the ones that are carrying the equipment because they're comfortable with it. But it's it's uh, probably more uncommon that patrol gets any. Or sorry, it's more common that patrol gets little to no training on it beyond that it's in the supervisor's rig. Yeah, and 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 it doesn't matter where you work, which country you work in, where you are. Uh, you know, in America, the average police agency across the nation. What are we at? About 20, 20 cops. I think Travis across the nation. So, you know, where there's a lot of rural communities, but cops are enterprising folks. And uh, someone who was voluntold to take over fleet once, that was me. I had to inspect all the cars and see what we were missing, what we needed and all that. And I found a lot of enterprising cops developing their own breaching uh, tools. You know, the, the little mini sledgehammer that they 
appropriated somewhere the the crowbar you know these these different tools that they just kind of throw in their trunk because they think they might need them and then we have a friend that that came up with a uh i don't even know what you call it i mean it's a straight burglary tool but you slide it in between a, a commercial door that faces out and then when you pull it back it forms a t and pushes on the push bar and, you know, he took that upon himself because he worked in a commercial area that he couldn't get into a lot of a lot of places in an emergency. So I think you'll see cops kind of kind of do that. But that doesn't absolve the agency from training them or coming up with some version of what are we going to do? And, and I think you'll see. Honestly, we've seen it a few times, but real rarely it's going to drive a police car through the building to get in there or something now if you have a bunch of victims in there you're not going to do that but it's not a hard problem to solve it is expensive you know up here where chris and i are uh i was involved in at the time the largest wildfire in the city in the state has now been blown away several times by that record and we had this old great guy worked for me and he's breaching a uh like an assisted care facility with hundreds of doors and he's kicking them manually and he gets about 15 minutes into this thing and he gets on our primary channel and says, Hey, will somebody please bring me something up here? I'm dying trying to breach all these doors and pull people out in the middle of a fire. So yeah, there's, there's tools that, uh, that we could have. And for my, for my area where I worked, it was very frustrating that all of that stuff was in a supervisor car because where I worked, a supervisor wasn't in the field. He was at the office and we needed it in the field. And the time it could take going code three across my town during rush hour traffic could be 30 minutes. So, so it didn't do me any good. You might as well have it at the station. So what is, why is it we have this desire to put important stuff in the supervisor car, right? We, you know, when, when less lethal shotguns first came out, it was like, where should we put them? How about in the sergeant's car? It's like, if that dude is the guy holding the less lethal shotgun, we've got a problem. He needs to be running the call. But why do we do that to ourselves? I don't, you know, it's like, do we not want to buy it as many of them? Okay, well, can we just not have it in a different car? It makes no sense to me. But it's like, it just pulls us like with like gravity. To it. I think one of the the assumptions is that the supervisor is going to be at these scenes. And so the, the common person showing up is that supervisor. But like Marcus said, and I, I know certainly I've experienced, you have a, a time gap. You know, there's an issue uh, between when those resources show up and, and when they're needed. Um, Virginia Tech, the shooting there was uh, 2007. Breaching problem. It wasn't one that they can drive a car through the door because of the configuration of that building. I know hearing the debriefs on that uh, a, a few different times, that was one that sort of prompted making sure that uh, at least rudimentary breaching tools are available. And there was definitely a, a crowbar and sledgehammer that found its way to the uh, back of my patrol car. Um, you know, during that time, just because it was, you know, uh, it was a problem. It's, it's being able to get in to try and make a difference and, and stop, the killing or stop the dying. If you can't breach and get in the problem, it's the same problem SWAT has. If you can't make an effective entry into this structure, you're just stuck outside. Kevin, to address your, your question, I think that it's uh, a security issue. 
So I spent a lot of money on this technology that I don't quite understand. And I'm really worried that you guys are going to misuse it. And so rather than address the, the first order effect or the first problem, which is train you to appropriately deploy the weapon, I'm going to do what's easier. I'm going to give it to the supervisor who I know is a little bit better trained in mitigating risk than you are. And therefore, I can make sure that it's okay. But in the end, in my opinion, that's the opposite. It's going to take him longer to get there. Now he's getting equipment out where he should be managing the momentum of the event, giving direction, identifying success, what it looks like, doing his job. And then he's going to pass it off to the same person that you said you didn't want him to have it in their car. Or worse, they have to make a crisis entry before the sergeant gets there, and they can't because he's driving there with the equipment. So, yeah, it's super frustrating. It seems like a cultural deal. Maybe it's because law enforcement, we really like our toys sometimes. And sometimes we buy really crazy stuff, then we use it inappropriately. And yeah, I, I don't know. So, so look at the extended range, less lethal model. They did start like in all the supervisors' cars. It's the same thing with Taser. I remember seeing the first time the M26 Taser was broken out. Like it's in a clamshell case. The supervisor brings it out. And, and now they're ubiquitous. You know, they went to everybody's uh, belt. And for the less lethal, you know, with our de-escalation efforts, time distance and shielding, uh, having that extended range impact weapon, now they're more commonly in the hands of everybody in patrol. Those incidents get more attention. They probably happen a little more frequently than having the breaching problems. And that's probably why it's been so slow to, to, to trickle out. Uh, but it's, you can start for 200 bucks per car, spreading some tools around. And, uh, it, you know, it's not that expect, expensive, uh, but it'll save a lot of heartache and grief. Does that... I guess, misallocation of equipment to supervisors' cars, does that reveal a fundamental misunderstanding on the part of executives, police executives, as to what the role the sergeant is or ought to be? Because if I'm giving the sergeant the, you know, the extended range impact weapon or the taser or the, the newest whatever thing that we need to have on that call, if that's what I'm giving them, that tells me that I don't actually know what that person is supposed to do. And that probably translates into, I probably don't know what I'm supposed to do in, in that case. You know, we haven't, we haven't put thought into a command and control structure because we're solitary individual contributors most times. Maybe a little more emphasis on uh, risk management in that model instead of leadership. I just think the evolution hasn't happened with the tools yet. I think it has with less lethal. Those are pushed out now. I mean, my agency, there's a, a 40 you know, in every sector, everybody's got a beanbag check. That whole manual tools, a bellwether event hasn't happened yet, or maybe it has, to get those all in, out of the supervisor cars and into every patrol car. So let's talk a little bit about arriving, right? So uh, the evolution of tactics. So from Columbine until now, you know, uh, for a long time, we taught wait for SWAT. We obviously learned that lesson. Then we taught wait for the diamond formation, right? Like we'll wait, we'll make a diamond. We taught diamonds for a while. We taught, you know, a couple other uh, a group tactics. And then we have so much data now, unfortunately, that we're like, hey, the data pretty much supports first contact for the majority of these events with law enforcement will end the event with either an OIS or the suspect taking their life. What happens 
when initial officers arrive and they start taking rounds and and especially if you work in communities where you you know how many times in your life are you going to take rounds on a patrol call and, and significant rounds not a not one or two shots as the guy's getting away but a guy who who came who came to fight what is what does that look like in our training it's all just I mean, we're talking about novel events so if you think about the events that prompted the formation of SWAT teams where these are events that were beyond the ability of the basic patrol officers to resolve uh, it took more than 30 years before we had Columbine and that evolution had to occur now hopefully it doesn't take another 30 years for the evolution to occur and I think the active shooter response and the, the training that happened in the early part of my career you know, and over the last uh, two decades has evolved at a more rapid pace. I think what's lagging behind, and, and I think you guys have already touched on it a little bit, is that leadership and, and command and control and recognizing what the actual conditions are that we're facing based upon the inputs that we're getting right now. It's like there's not an understanding. And we, we know that we're going to have conflicting, ambiguous information we know those elements of the crisis are, are going to be present, but we also have tools to work through this. And if you've done the tabletops or the, the training and prepared for these in advance, uh, it's not as complicated to start looking at what the appropriate solutions or decisions need to be made. But we're, we're just not teaching or training that enough. Now I can, I'm going to rewind you back just a little bit to that because I, I agree with where you're going, but let's talk about, average training and and kevin i want your opinion on this and what you folks do because you have a lot of rural areas um, as well as very dense cities that you respond to my experience with bounding and training when i started on our tactical team was kind of at the end of the range day we talked about rural movements rural operations and we would say, okay, the, the adversary is shooting at you. He's over here. We're going to do bounding overwatch. And you're going to direct your fire at the suspect while these guys bound forward. But quite honestly, it was a great, it's a great tactic. And it's a great tactic for the military. But we were dumping magazines into the bushes, trees, the berm, wherever it was, training to something that you can't do in law enforcement. I have to be accountable for where my rounds go. Now, if I'm shooting at a suspect, I'm shooting at a suspect. But, but there is something to be said for that tactic on patrol, the bounding overwatch, the coordinating movements of two to four to five or small unit elements. And I know, Trav, you've had a couple patrol incidences recently where you deployed that kind of a tactic. Yeah, it wasn't recent, but it's been in the past where we've used it to, you know, you got a guy in the front yard standing with a rifle and I got a group of five people that I need to move or three people we need to move. And it works. It, it's worked well for me, but it's something that we don't, we don't train patrol in. And I think that that is another, another tactic that we should be training them in, at least the basics, you know, moving to groups of three. And really I'm, and I'll be quiet because I asked Kevin to chime in and then I cut him off. But what we're talking about here is not just laying down cover fire, right? And, and we talk about that in our classes. There's a difference between, you know, there's not a, in law enforcement in America, very few opportunities you're going to legally 
within policy, especially in the state of California, throw down cover fire. Or we can direct fire, we can designate shooters, but more what Travis, I think you're speaking to is communicating elements moving in concert together. And I'll, I'll be your designated shooter. I will cover the area while you move forward to the next point of cover in coordinating those efforts at a patrol level. Is that, is that my fair, fairly describing that? Yes, that's correct. Kevin, you, you kind of go, you do both. You're, you're in really dense populations, but you're also, your agency does a lot of rural areas too. Do you guys talk about what we would call bounding overwatch or, those kind of movements. Yeah, we do. And it's, it's funny, you, you described that at the end of that range day. And like, we've run that drill like so many times. And what we learned is that a, that works great on a, like, you know, two dimensional, you know, uh, 90 degree range. Now go into the movie theater, you know, after hours and get your bad guy, you know, behind the popcorn machine counter. Now you have a lot of different options. So we, we you know, we focus more on flanking rather than bounding and, you know, like find, fix and finish type thing. I mean, that's my team. My team's, you know, 60 full-time guys. That's all, that's all we do. You know, we have 600 hours of training a year. Our patrol members have no such training. And, you know, my kid's elementary school teacher gets more professional development days per year than, you know, the average patrol officer. I think the closest analogy we provide them that, you know, you might be able to extrapolate and hope, hope it extrapolates is uh, vehicle CQB. So we at least give them some sort of, you know, dynamic, hey, this guy's not right in front of you. You have to move around. You know, you might have a partner with you and you're both moving around situation. I feel like that's a great way to start. You know, probability wise, that's probably where the shooting is going to happen. But then you can at least extrapolate on that very similar skill set. But have we done that? No. Yeah, it's all about teaching about maneuver that you know, that, that nine, you know, one of the nine principles of war, what maneuver really is. Chris, you have something to add to that? Oh, I was just, and Kevin hit it square on the head with the uh, vehicle CQB, and that's understanding and recognizing microterrain and uh, the advantage of maneuver and flanking and uh, being able to divide the suspect's uh, attention. You know, you get inside of that person's ooh, make them start making uh, you know, poor decisions or reacting to you rather than you reacting to them and, and having the freedom of movement. That's uh, an important component. And bounding doesn't always mean that somebody's laying down fire for you. It's, it's simply somebody's responsible, um, you know, for covering you uh, and, and watching out uh, for that elements movement um, while they're going from point A to point B to get an advantageous position. And that could be on a city street. It can be in a hallway. We do it. And a lot of these concepts we kind of understand and we've practiced, but sometimes we don't recognize them uh, in the moment or we, we don't see them in this. We've taken a couple steps back. Especially in a novel event where you're, you know, your pulse rates up, you're trying to figure out what you actually have and what's going on. And I, I just want to acknowledge real quick, Trav, if you would with me here, uh, Chris, Colonel Anderson is proud of you. You immediately brought in Colonel Boyd Cycle. And uh, for that, he's smiling down upon you right now. So uh, Chris done a deep dive on the OODA loop this year. And uh, I don't think for about a month, it was about every four days, he would call me about 
a different book about Colonel Boyd or a different concept of the deep dive into, into Boyd cycle. So, uh, so thank, thank you for bringing that up. Let's talk about uh, patrol versus SWAT. Let's talk about patrol responding with shields. And, and, and again, uh, Kevin, this is one of my pet peeves because when we first got shields at my agency, they're like, well, let's put them in the sergeant car. And I'm like, oh my God, like first it was in the armory. So you'd have to call for a shield. And I'm like, oh, that's like the worst thing ever. And then let's put them in the sergeant's car. Well, the sergeant car was less than 25 yards from where the armory was. So like, oh yeah, we, we really, we shaved 27 seconds off. And, uh, and really, in my opinion, maybe you can't have shields for every single car. That's just pretty expensive, but designate shields cars. So every shift, there's a shield out there. Every shift, there's a 40. For my agency, they, they issued 40s for every single car. And uh, that's an easy sell, you know, because it's a, it's a less lethal, it's a less lethal tool. But what do you guys think about, you know, especially going across the country and Chris going up and down California and, and, and Kevin in Canada, what, what do you see people getting trained on shields and then what should we be doing or, or are we doing okay? Yeah. So maybe I'll start with my theory of equipment management is that it is in the long run, oftentimes cheaper just to individually issue someone something rather than expect it to be shared, like shared piece of equipment. It's, I don't care how squared away your team is. It's not going to be taken care of. The shield's not going to have the cover on it. You're going to use it. The glass is going to be scratched out. The batteries are going to be dead. Like cars don't take care of equipment. People take care of equipment. So unless you have a really robust inspection period, you know, it, it's almost a failing strategy. So I prefer if, if we can afford it, we just buy everyone that thing that they need. And then we don't have to worry about it. Um, as far as, you know, oh man, I had another thought and I kind of, uh, I, I kind of lost it. <laughs> oh, okay. So for shields, our agency was, was going to buy shields and someone came to the conclusion that they were going to buy level four shields because they were the safest shields out there and nothing. And then no one could ever say that you didn't buy your officers the best thing. Like this is like a classic example of zero risk bias, right? You're reducing one risk to zero, but you're increasing other risks much higher. We've, we've, you know, that's why we used to wear level four plates. It's the exact same thing. And it's a, it's a really well-known like psychological trait that zero risk bias. Um, but it's, it's, it's wrong. Like, you know, and the, and the people making these purchasing decisions aren't often the ones who have to carry it. They don't understand like no one is going to lift that. No one's going to have, you know, be able to fit in that. So it's really, you know, you have to have a management that's willing to understand risk trade-offs. And that's a little more rare than, than, you know, than it should be. I know we touched on something that uh, is near and dear to your heart, Travis. So the, we're not going to talk about what brand of shield you should buy, but the difference between a pistol shield and a rifle shield and, and how many do you need and what size is your agency and where are they and how do you get them? And for my agency, we uh, were fortunate uh, in the North Bay. There's a manufacturer I actually stole this from one of the SAC SO SWAT guys. When I was up there meeting him one day, I saw a shield and it had magnets all on it and it was uh, rifle rated and they would just, they'd get four or five of them slap them to the side of a suburban before the armor would get there and rescue somebody or do some stuff. So we have those, we deploy them each shift, but what do you think happens? They take them out then they don't take them back out again. So then when you need one, you have to go open up all the cars that are in the back lot that aren't being used because the guys that need them don't have them. 
and we and we run this circle all the time so you're as a sergeant you're constantly out there like hey, who did, didn't you have a shield where is it oh i left it in the car okay well you need to give it to the next person if your car's not being used or designate a shield or those kind of issues and and then do we do pistol or do we rifle shields there's a significant uh a trade-off there yeah i'd say you do both if you can have a combo of both i mean what we're looking at that they ran into a problem at pulse with that where they didn't have a rifle rated shield uh their team didn't um obviously a, you know a recent incident they were calling for shields so you know look at the stats and what they say about who's using handguns versus rifles and it's not just our ases our active shooter events we're talking about hostage rescue i mean look at we had an incident here in california happen where the guy was you know firing a 308 rifle putting the cops back on our heels it's and shields aren't a pan, you know, a panacea by any stretch of the imagination. And I think what happens sometimes is that they over rely on them and they don't want to do anything until a shield gets there. Like that's going to just solve all their problems. And while I, I agree that it's a useful piece of equipment, I just, I just sometimes I think there's this over reliance on it that we really need to guard against. Well, yeah. And it's, it, there's a specific skill set that goes along with that, right? I mean, for most SWAT guys, they want to learn it. For most patrol folks, they may be a little more resistant to it. And for people that aren't very skilled with their sidearm to begin with, now going one-handed and potentially, you know, aiming through a viewport, you know, it's kind of an additional compromise there if they're not uh, properly trained or uh, invested in that training. And so I, I think for a lot of the smaller agencies, a better model might be that, to try and, you know, get, you know, one or two people per squad or per shift that uh, are interested in it and invest your, your time and resources in those folks. Uh, so they're spread around, but they're spread around to, to competent people that can continue to train their team. So they'll uh, deploy it appropriately. And again, competently build some trust and and faith in the tool and uh it becomes part of the culture of that team so let me ask you this this is one of my pet peeves kevin i i've i've gotten a lots of calls as a as a sergeant or lieutenant and you know why there might not be active shots being fired there's a there's enough there where we need to get a shield out. So someone will call for the shield, less lethal dog. They'll kind of, Hey, someone's taking charge of patrol officer. We're getting there and they'll get the shield out. They'll make a arrest team or a contact team, crisis team, whatever you want to call it. And they'll have the shield, but they don't put their helmets on at a patrol level. And, and that's across the board. Like uh, I, I have the opportunity to speak at three different management schools in Northern California. And then at, commander and team leader throughout the state and i'll ask hey so those of you in a leadership position do your patrol guys put their helmets on when they're going to a shots fired call not a shots fired happened six hours ago call or i i saw this guy with a gun i think he shot it and i drove home and i, oh, I picked up pizza on my way home and then i called it in not those calls but like a legit hey man this might be the real deal even putting their helmets on Am I, is it just me? That's just one of my pet peeves. We had an unfreezing event up here, and, and as a result, uh, they put the ballistic helmets and then uh, plate carriers in all the cars. We already had patrol rifles and, um, you know, uh, rolled out to a uh, uh, 
shots fired call. I mean, there was multiple cars. I knew the guy was out front with a, a rifle or a long gun. Uh, and like one person put on their helmet and played care. Everybody else, you know, uh, ran up and just, you know, it wasn't an active shooter. It was, uh, you know, a shots fired. They, they knew some of the circumstances. Nobody did it. We've trained it, but we just don't train it all the time. And it's, that was one of our sort of takeaways from that event is we're going to have to integrate this into our response and put people in the cars. And part of the range training is, you know, you're going to this type of call with specific stimulus. You've got to get your helmet and, and uh, plate carrier. It's not that they're getting ambushed. We don't want people going and putting their helmets on while they're taking fire in the car, but this is part of that mental preparation. As you're listening to this call and you're a few blocks out, you know, unlocking the rifle um, and where the rest of that gear is staged and, and set up. I, I think this is, that's an artifact of police culture. And I, we can use a, a, almost a completely different example. Um, lights and sirens. When was the last time you saw a firefighter or an ambulance go to a call without their lights and sirens on, right? They don't. Like they always have it on. They've got their earmuffs on and they're, they're driving code three. And if they have to shut it down, they shut it down. When was the last time you saw a patrol guy go to a call like, I, I, we call it code three, you know, but he's going code two and a half. Like maybe his lights are on, but not a siren. And it's not because he's too close that he's going to hear. Like, it's like, we feel embarrassed to roll out the machine. We feel embarrassed to check all the boxes. And, you know, you get stood down. If you have your siren on, you got to take three turns before you turn it off. Cause you're, you know, embarrassed just to turn it off and keep driving normal. So you got to turn off. So people don't think you're weird. Um, so I think that's cultural. Like you don't see firefighters go to calls without helmets on like ever, like, you know, like, they, not even close so what is it about our culture that that allows that it's like you know we've gone to rural calls and guys won't put campaign on like it's crazy like if you knew for sure someone was going to be hunting you you'd put it on so why do we get this perception like it's not going to happen this time it's you know you grab the shield is that enough to check the box that hey i'm doing enough to keep myself safe but you you don't want to look like too gung-ho or something i'm not sure what i'm not sure what it is i know it's culture but i can't identify what that culture is put a name to it or figure out how to, how to address it. No, you're right. It's a culture thing, right? Like, uh, I don't want to be, I don't want to be embarrassed. I'm, I'm willing to take a headshot, right? Like I'm going to take a bullet in the head, but I don't want to be embarrassed. Uh, it is a very interesting deal that we do that. So, so I'm speaking directly to the first line supervisors that are out there. And this also goes back to that inappropriate, uh, or the indiscriminate parking. You absolutely can influence your teams in this area. Uh, whenever your shift change comes around and you're laying out some of those expectations, you have the conversation and then you model the behavior and then you make corrections when you're showing out, you're showing up to these incidents when it happens. You don't write somebody up, you, you know, it doesn't have to go disciplinary, but you make that appeal, you model the, the, the behavior and you show them. And when a couple people start to do the same thing, and it's, it's great when you have uh, a current or former uh, SWAT guy that's on the team, uh, patrol team. Uh, that also, you know, always has, you know, batteries in their flashlight. They, they have the equipment they're expected to have. It starts to get contagious. And then when the majority of the team is doing that, and that's become the expectation, uh, I've seen it where somebody comes into work overtime and the patrol team, everybody parks on the correct side of the street for that team. And the one guy that's working overtime goes to pull in the wrong spot. And they're like, wait a second, something's not right here. And they, they get in line because they don't want to be the outlier. Um, but it's deliberate and you, you have to, um, 
you know, you have to reinforce that. And if you truly uh, love the people that you lead, you'll make sure that they're doing the things that are going to keep them safe. Let's transition a little bit. This, this is a little bit bigger topic and uh, Kevin's got some great things to say about it. So does Travis. So does Chris. We all three of us have talked about this with each other and let's talk about as a leader, you're responding to a dynamic event. It's unfolding and it could be uh, a possible hostage rescue. It could be uh, an active shooter, but we train a lot. Let's say active shooter. We train a lot of active shooter. It's either, or it's an active shooter or it's something else or it's a hostage rescue or it's a barricade. It's dynamic or it's slow and dimbler or it's stop and hold. I mean, uh, stop r- surround and call out breach and delay breach and hold. Like we, we talk about these terms, like they're either ors. And in reality, a, a, a tactical event, slow or fast is dynamic. And you may use all of those tools multiple times as you progress through your call, while you're taking away terrain from the suspect or while you're trying to gain terrain or rescue people, all these things that can happen at the same time. So what are the things you think in your experience that help you make that decision as a leader on the ground. We talked a lot about um, who do you pick to be in charge? So is it the, the person of the highest rank? Is it the subject matter expert? Or is it the person with the most situational awareness? And one of the things uh, I noticed, and I don't know when this happened in, in my career, but we started waiting for the sergeant to come. And when I started, we never did that. We, whoever was there took charge, was in charge until someone of higher rank showed up, but they would coordinate the perimeter. They would coordinate a search team, arrest team. They might wait for air or a canine, but they didn't wait for the sergeant. And then at some point, I don't know when this happened. We just started waiting for the sergeant. And uh, we fixed that at my agency, but we would wait for the sergeant. I'm like, well, who has the best situational awareness? The guy behind the desk is driving there or you, you have it. You need to direct resources. Tell us what we have and where we need to go. So when we look at some of these uh, dynamic unfolding events, who should be in charge and, and, and when? I think Marcus, one of the things that, first of all, you want to talk about situational awareness you, my, my firm belief is that you align decision-making authority with situational awareness. Whoever's up front looking at the problem needs to be making the decisions. If I'm on my way there, unless something is going catastrophically wrong, I'm not going to be issuing orders over the radio most of the time. You know, if they're not getting a crisis entry team set up or they're not doing what they're supposed to do, well, then that's another, that's a whole nother topic. But to answer your question, I think you needed, it, it all goes back to trust. And if you don't trust your officers that are responding to that, then it's your responsibility to get them to a point where you do. And you have to build that trust by actually handling calls with them. And I don't mean um, micromanaging them, but to your point about supervisors who, um, because this happened in my agency too. In fact, I, I'm interested to see how you solved it. And this does transition over in what we're talking about with active shooters, but we've a lot of times what we've done is we've created officers who will wait for a sergeant to get there to do anything. 
And that sergeant is absolutely robbing those officers of the initiative and their ability to grow so that something like when a, if they go work overtime on another shift where a sergeant doesn't do that, and that officer is just standing there waiting to be told what to do, well, that can translate over into a critical incident. Every single officer should know how to go start addressing an active shooter or start setting up a crisis entry team or an arrest team or whatever that is. And it's a systemic problem in law enforcement that I've seen all over this country where we have supervisors who are running calls and that is creating officers who will not take action and just wait for the sergeant, which can translate over again into what we're talking about with an active shooter event. And I don't know why that has happened. I really don't. I don't know if it's because we have so many young cops in patrol. I mean, if you think about the first 10 cops that responded to borderline, all of them were under three years. You don't, don't tell me you don't think that made a difference when that thing kicked off because it absolutely does. Or look at Nashville. You know, yeah. that, again, same thing, right? It was a Sunday morning. Well, they rocked it. They, they, they did. Killed it. Yeah. And yeah. those, and, and when I talked to them, they, they had good supervision. And they knew what to do. They, you know, you give them what your intent is. What is our focus of effort right now? Prevent the lost life, great bodily injury. All right, we're deriving our tactics from that strategy based on time, terrain, and all those different things. Part, part of the theme here, I think, that keeps coming up is pre-event planning, right? And, and not at the, it could be at the organizational level, but we're just talking about who is your sphere of influence. Are you a senior person on your patrol team? Are you a sergeant? Are you a lieutenant? Are you a commander? It doesn't really matter. Your span of control might be bigger, but how do you address these expectations pre-event before that big event happens in your town? And I'll give you an example. I had an officer who doesn't work at our agency anymore. Good, still We still talk. Um, successful officer, young kid, go-getter, made a lot of mistakes because he was out there trying and hunting and catching guys and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. But I, I didn't really know him that well. And he shows up on a, I show up on his call and I just stand there. I go, okay, set up the perimeter. And he's like, what? I go, this is your call, man. You, you got to own your call, set it up. And he, he told me actually not too long ago, he's like, I never forgot that. Like, that's my job. I go, yeah, man, that's not my job. Like, I'll come help you. But by the time I get there, you've already set this thing off to the path of success or you've hurt us. So you need to take ownership of how you run your calls. And uh, for him, he's a rookie cop. And he's like, I need to learn this. And successfully became a canine officer. Um, He's an FTO at another agency right now. He's doing great. But he, he told me the other day, he's like, I never forgot that. Like, I was really embarrassed. I didn't know what to do because I was just used to people telling me and I didn't have to think for myself. So you, I think you got to set that culture and then practice, right? Practice when no one's shooting at you, when it's just somebody you're chasing, a domestic violence suspect, a, a, a theft call, whatever, you know, all the other calls that we handle. But we're also talking about the uh, high risk, low frequency events. So, you know, by their nature, they're the people there. You don't get a lot of reps at these except in the biggest cities or, you know, the worst part of the county. Um, and, and so when they're confronted with the uncertainty and the risk and, you know, the potential for the severe consequences, those elements of the crisis that are always present, that, that those are uh, psychological and sometimes physiological obstacles that they have to overcome. And when they do occur, a lot of the agencies are 
uh, resistant to identifying, you know, any lessons learned or, you know, and it's not for the sake of finding fault, but it's, it's how to improve. And it's another issue with our law enforcement culture that we haven't really embraced. And so if you don't have, you know, you already don't have high frequency events and you're not really uh, establishing a healthy learning cycle from it, it's very difficult to, to get training within your own organization. If you don't have that culture, you have to seek the training. And going back to that, ooh, you have to build your orientation do that through decision-making exercises, tabletops, you understand the circumstances and the decision patterns that other people have done under similar circumstances. So it's not completely foreign to you when it's presented to you. And it's just like you were saying with setting the perimeter, you know, on the, the foot pursuit. Um, if you haven't done it before, it's a little bit difficult. Sixth, seventh, eighth time that you've done it, it gets easy. You know, the more you know your beat, your beat partners, all this stuff becomes easier with repetition and planning. But you have mental modeling that, that goes into that. You can reflect back on that, you know, that first perimeter that you were setting or the better perimeter that you set. And that's what we need to sort of embrace and, and grow on. And, and again, they're low frequency, high risk. So you have to find other ways other than being at your events to supplement uh, that knowledge and growth. Yeah, so I think that um, when we talk about leadership failures, I think one of the things that I see is when you get a commander or like a sergeant who just wants to like hold on to absolutely every shred of authority and won't let anyone move without their approval, it's because they're conflating authority and um, accountability, right? So you get, especially if you, I think this is especially true at like the lieutenant level or the incident commander level. It's like, well, listen, I'm accountable for everything that happens on that call. Yes, that like that is unquestionably true. The easy way to you know check that box of, of accountability is to just control abs like like as if my team is a chess piece and I'm the one moving all the pieces around and control everything. Like that's super. It seems easy, but it's actually hard because I'm starting to make decisions that I don't have situational awareness on. I'm making decisions that I don't have subject subject matter expertise on. The much harder way to have accountability is to, like you said, it's that pre-event planning, it's your training, it's your equipment, is your, are your SOPs in order? Have you actually repped this? Like, that's how you satisfy your accountability. Are your people properly trained to handle this event? It's not by, you know, pulling back the reins and trying to control everything so that, you know, if it goes well, you can high five yourself and convince yourself you did a good job. You probably just got lucky. So yeah, that, that conflation of authority and accountability is a, is a huge red flag to me. Yeah. And if, if you're not comfortable, then one of you is in the wrong spot, right? So if I'm not comfortable, then I'm, I'm not comfortable with what my role is, or I don't understand it, or I'm not comfortable with my people. And if I'm not comfortable with my people, that's also my fault because I haven't spent enough time with them to know their strengths and weaknesses and put the square pegs in the square holes and understand it. And they're not comfortable enough with me. So either way, the fault lies, the, you know, the fault lies with me, especially if I don't feel comfortable enough to decentralize those decisions so that I don't get overwhelmed by events, by trying to control all that stuff. So I appreciate that before we move on a little bit to transitioning, um, Kevin, I just wanted you, cause you, you said it so much better than I did real quick. Just give me your, your 60 seconds or so on incident commander. Who's the incident commander versus the subject matter expert versus rank versus situational awareness. Because I, I liked how you said that. It was a lot better than the way I said it. Well, I'll see, I'll see if I can do a redo. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of pressure now. Listen, 
like whenever you go to these major incidents, the guy with the or gal with the highest rank is going to feel some sort of compulsion to take command. Like I'm in charge. But does that mean they have to make every decision? Like who should actually be making the decisions? And I think that the necessary criteria is they have to be appropriately trained and have the best situational awareness. Once you cross that level of training, like you might not pick the, like the best trained person. You're going to pick the, the, the person with the best situational awareness. Like in a tie, it's situational awareness, Trump's training, as long as training meets the necessary threshold. If you're below that threshold, then yeah, maybe someone with less situational awareness is, is, is actually going to make better decisions just because they've got more experience and expertise. But, uh, you know, if you're not that person and you outrank that person, that's okay. There's like a million other jobs that you can do to make their job easier and better. And you need to focus on those things. Um, so I, I think the, the rule of thumb that I go by is what job can only I do? And then I try to do that job. If there's something I can let someone else do, it's, it's probably a good one to decentralize. Thanks. So you can, just, you can take and have incident command, but delegate you know, operational decisions to somebody that has that experience or situational awareness and not uh, you know, give up your uh, authority or responsibility. It, it, when you mentioned this before, Reminded me of the uh, Admiral Rickover quote. It was, uh, responsibility is a unique concept. You may share it with others, but your portion is not diminished. You may delegate it, but it is still with you. The responsibility is rightfully yours. No evasion or ignorance or passing the blame can shift the burden to someone else. Unless you can point your finger at the man who is responsible when something goes wrong, then you have never had anyone really responsible. Uh, that's in Against the Tide, which is on the Cato reading list. Uh, but it's... Uh, that incident commander for a lot of agencies, it's specified by policy. And we, we have an ICS model that we follow. Again, they don't have to be that decision maker. They can delegate some of that responsibility uh, to somebody who's more suited to do it. So or because it goes uh, back to commanding. Sorry, Chris. No, go ahead. It goes back to command and control. You can be in command and not in control. That's about the simplest way I think about it. Yeah, very good. So let's talk a little bit. Um, I know we're getting pressed for time and I really appreciate you guys being with me tonight, but this one I don't have a straight answer for. And this is the gap. This is the gap when transitioning from a dynamic event, like a hostage rescue or a, a fresh pursuit or an active shooter to a barricade. And, and we train uh, universally and, and I'm not speaking for Kevin in, in Canada, but universally, I've never heard anybody not trained. We're going to stop the, the killing, stop the dying. And if we don't hear stimulus, we don't hear shots fired, then we slow down. And for me, I always ask myself, why do we slow down when the second part of the strategy is not being addressed? If we slow down, then we're not stopping the dying, possibly. Now, I know I say that. There's a whole bunch of caveats to that, right? We're slowing down enough to properly, safely search until we have more stimulus. I, I, I get all that. But my real point of the question is, it could be a hostage rescue or a, a captive, right? I feel like I had a very big gap in my training when it came to that gray area of in between those two things. How do I make those decisions? 
what information do I need where I can defend? And it's easy to second guess in hindsight. This is no longer something I need to pursue dynamically. I need to now use time and terrain and negotiate, especially in California, where we're required by law to articulate that we use time distance and or shielding to de-escalate the situation, use the least amount of force possible to, to affect the arrest or return it back to normal. And, and I know I'm using an extreme example of active shooter versus barricade because that's like the hot topic right now. But in, there's all kinds of situations where you as a leader, as a sergeant, as a team leader, as a lieutenant, as a commander, where you get this information, this intelligence, and you have to decide which way are we going to go? Am I, am I pushing the momentum or am I slowing the momentum back down? And, and, and I mean this with all due respect and compassion. Oakland's a great example of that. Right. And, and there's a lot of examples of that, but I feel like at least in my, my training, I, I never got real clear cut. I feel comfortable in that area to articulate that decision. Well, Marcus, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll speak to that and, you know, we can stick with the active shooter or not. One of the things I see again across the country is this decision on whether or not to intervene, whether that be a hostage problem or whether that's an active shooter, do we stay or do we intervene? And, you know, we'll just look at active shooter because again, like you said, it's the hot topic right now. But one of the things that I talk about is we, you know, we have the strategy to stop the killing and stop the dying. Right. And I think we do this thing in law enforcement, much like the business world, where we take these complex topics and we try and distill them down into very simple concepts, such as the priority of life or the safety priorities. When in reality, there are things that occur that don't quite fit that mold and it's not as simple as we take it. And so if you have somebody like Pulse, for example, where he barricades himself with what they call hostages, which are in fact captives, because and that goes on to a whole nother realm of negotiations and, and, and that whole thing, but that causes problems. What do we do there? Do we stay? Do we go? Do we intervene? Do we not intervene? And I think that, you know, there's some subsets of stop the killing while he's barricaded with hostages or captives. Well, he stopped shooting. Do we stay or do we go? There's a recent, uh, it's been in the last couple of years where they're at the breach or at the uh, primary entrance of an active shooter. They're going to go inside for an intervention. The shooting stopped. And one of the members of the entry team says, hey, I think we need to hold up here. This is a barricade. And so this decision is causing us uh, a lot of problems. And I think the one way to solve it is to get with your supervisors, get with your incident commanders and start doing those decision-making exercises. Because when these operations are analyzed, it's always the decisions that are most conspicuous. And you can take the, the, the latest one, is the decisions that were made are going to be broken down and they're going to be analyzed to see why they were made. And we do a horrible job in law enforcement of working on decision-making, the how versus the why. Now, I give the example that, that Sid taught me where it's great it's, it's great that you can go to the range and have great marksmanship, which is absolutely needed. But what about the decision to even shoot in the first place? We don't work on that enough. And I think if you're not doing that at your agency, if you are not working on your incident commander, your supervisor's crisis decision-making, and Marcus, it doesn't have to be an active shooter event. We can talk about a hostage problem that happens in patrol or barricade because we know that's where they all start before SWAT teams get there. We are really failing them. And we wonder why 
like I said at the beginning of this, we have over 90% leadership issues. It starts with the decision-making, in my opinion. Any other thoughts on that, uh, you two? It's going to say that one of the things you were talking about uh, as we transition to this really has to do with tempo. So if we have stimulus, we're, we're basically moving as quickly as we can to uh, get to that crisis point so that we can intervene. When or in the absence of that stimulus, then our tempo slows down a little bit, but we still have like our ICS priorities. So if you know we've already met the life safety priority, now we have an incident containment uh, that we need to uh, address. And so we want to shrink the problem. So a uh, large perimeter around something that we assume is a barricade may not be uh, our best action and it might be the best action just depending on what other information is there but you can't make an automatic assumption that once one thing has stopped it's transitioned to another you you, uh, you know you, you you have to have a balance between uh, you know having that uncontrolled momentum where uh, you know there's there's groupthink or you know the, the head and eyes aren't up recognizing the signs and signals that uh, you may be heading down the wrong path. Uh, but being stagnant or on your heels is, is absolutely the wrong thing to do. So uh, if it, you know, that absence of stimulus, start shrinking the problem. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll confess that I, I, I'll get you just one sec. Kev. Uh, I really looked at it black and white. Uh, I'm going to respond to an active shooter. And then when it stopped, I'm going to slow down systematically search and until I promoted above that and really started becoming a student of these events and reading these after action, after action reports. And if you haven't read the Pulse nightclub, you need to, because there is a lot of lessons learned in that. And, and in reality, they did a good job with a horrible situation and that situation could happen in your town. It is not, it wasn't some big complex coordinated attack. Um, but because of the terrain, it became a big problem. So I really looked at it black and white until I started understanding there are things I can do at the command level to manipulate the terrain, to shrink the problem, to, to while I have a hunter team, I'm creating rescue corridors, I'm evacuating people, I'm slicing terrain away from the suspect. Like there's a lot of other things you can do at the same time. Uh, go ahead, Kevin, I cut you off. No, I, you know, I was just going to pile on a bit. Um, with it's so hard in these situations to talk about terms of right decisions versus wrong decisions, because you're, you're just weighing competing unknown probabilities. And if I go to a call and I say, listen, guys, I decided based on the terrain and the lighting and who I had with me and their equipment and their, their KSAs that waiting 20 minutes for SWAT to arrive was a better decision and would result in less life loss than in pushing ahead with what I had given the circumstance. Like, and here's the things that I, considered. You could look at that and, and you can assess whether or not there's any deviations or misapplications of, of current best practices, because of course we can't tell the future and we, we learn things. Um, but it's really hard to say, you know, and you can say, as long as I haven't deviated from that or misapplied something or just missed some, you know, massive uh, uh, area of risk that I, that I should have thought about some, some factor, um, it's really hard to say right or wrong. You can say reasonable or unreasonable decision, but I'm really reluctant to say someone was wrong 
You know, they might not have been doing what they I did would do, but that doesn't make it wrong. It, it and doesn't even make it unreasonable. It could still be reasonable, just different. Yeah, and I think you you really bring up a great point, right? What are we defining success as? And sometimes um, it's very easy for us to get sucked into the public dialogue of successes. No one's hurt. In reality, in these events, you might have the lesser of two really horrible decisions. Neither one is a dis- neither decision are good. Neither decision is the one you want, but they're your two options. And so you pick the least horrible one. And, and sometimes we forget that, like, it's not always that black and white. It's like, well, I had two horrible decisions and I'm forced into this dilemma. And, and that's our goal, right? We want to force our suspect into a dilemma where they have to make a horrible decision. But in, in reality, a lot of times, especially with these big complex events, we're, we, we think because the, the outcome wasn't perfect that someone made a bad decision when in reality, they, they had a choice between two bad decisions and they, they picked the one that they thought was the least worst. Well, that's what I really like about, sorry, you guys talking about uh, like shrinking the problem uh, is just making our problem smaller, his problem bigger, because, you know, we're talking about when we get to that uh, inflection point where we don't know which branch of the road to take in our decision-making. So what's the small iterative next step that we can take? And it's going to give us more information. So we're going to improve our situation a bit and it's going to give us more information because we're not observing the problem. We're now interacting with the problem. We're, we're just changing our vantage point a bit. We're creating some stimulus on the other side. And so we're going to get some response back. So we're going to be able to, you know, just learn more about what we're facing and then identify which road we should take. I think the dichotomy and the trap we have to look out for though, is sometimes we take small iterative steps thinking we're shrinking the problem Really, we're just spinning our wheels and doing dumb shit that, you know, is not helping anyone. But we're convincing ourselves we're, do, we're busy. We're just doing busy work. So I think we have to be careful about that. Yeah, that's, yeah, a, that's a great say, point. Go ahead, Trav. I know, you know, looking at it, Marcus, you brought up a great point. I used to look at these things as black and white. And what everybody has to remember is there's no algorithm here. These are all context dependent. We're going to, you know, have to take the context of that problem, wrap our tactics around it, and do the best we can. because. Kevin is also hits the nail on the head with it's reasonable or unreasonable. Um, and we all have to remember that we, I mean, we've been involved in things before and I, and, and having talked to people involved in all these things, there is always, always, always some little piece of information or little thing that caused them to do something that we have no clue about that. We just have zero awareness of right now. Um, and that's one thing that I've learned talking to talking to guys involved in these huge incidents. Uh, it's like Pulse. When I went out there, one of the things that I wanted to want to know is why did it take them so long? Because they had people in the media just slamming the hell out of them. And then once I got out there, looked at the terrain, talked to those involved, you're like, yeah, makes good sense why they took that course of action and, and took so long to conduct that explosive breach on the three side of Pulse. Yeah, if you drew out Pulse on a whiteboard and you gave the scenario without telling anyone it was Paul's, it gets pretty dicey pretty fast. And, and a lot of teams don't have the capability to deal with that cinder block barricaded guy on a T intersection. Like that's, that's a no good day. Let's talk a little bit about ambushes. So, you know, one of the strategies we talk about in responding to these I guess we'll call them active shooter events, but when they, when they do stop and we slow down, 
you know, knowing the data for the ambushes, right? And and are, are we running into an ambush just because they stopped the stimulus and they're waiting for us to get up there? And we have several several examples where they they were ambushing us or they would set a flashlight or a light in the back door thinking that there might be a second suspect or they barricaded certain things or they would manipulate the environment to confuse us and make us think that there was two yeah i've marcus i've I've looked at three different incidents you've got uh um, well actually chris boulder they, they ambushed those guys or that suspect ambushed those poor officers you've got borderline obviously he ambushed uh, them at the front door. And then you've got the Pittsburgh synagogue as well. And I, I just would press on everybody. We've got to stop. And that study that just came out, Marcus, and I know it was more SWAT specific, wasn't it about where we're getting shot during entries? Was that it? Was It wasn't active shooters. But one of the things we got to stop doing is going through the primary breach point, primary entrance. 75% of active shooters access the crisis site through the primary entrance. There's, there's other, that's why it's so important to do, you know, to talk about things like tactical diagramming. How many entries and exits does a business have in California? Well, they're not just going to have the primary entry point. There's going to be something on the three side that's an exit that maybe we can get in through there. We've got to start looking at that stuff and stop intervening in these incidents through the front door, if at all possible. And I know sometimes that, that, that it's not. But if you're arriving at one of these things and the shooting stopped and you can get in through another entrance and it's not going to delay you too much, that's something to think about. And that's your change in tempo as well. You're, you have to adjust to the lack of stimulus. Um, not every shooting is an active shooter. It has the potential to be, but not every shooting is an active shooter. So our tactics need to be adapted accordingly. Yeah. And, and as a side note, let's talk about that for a second, active shooter. And there's, there's some other terms I think that'll be probably, we won't be using active shooter anymore, more mass killer type of a deal. And, um, but because someone's actively shooting does not mean that they have the intent to kill as many people as possible. And we've seen this the last couple of years in California where even our own folks in our profession are misdiagnosing the issue and calling them active shooters. And right now we're seeing it across the country where you have two gangsters or two criminals getting a shootout at a club and they shoot a bunch of other people and it's a mass casualty incident, but the intention of the criminals were not to commit a mass casualty action. And, and the press is driving that narrative and, and we're seeing that happen where our officers are calling those active shooters. And that's a big problem because we do not self-deploy on an incident where there's people actively shooting or exchanging gunfire. It has to be a controlled discipline response. And, and we've seen that cause blue on blue shootings. And that's a real that's a real thing. Yeah, there's a, this this came to light to me, and it's it's along the same lines of what you're talking about. An incident in Northern California, they have a suspect inside a house, not maneuvering in a in, in a fixed position, and he's firing at the officers, and they call that an active shooter. And so, what do responding officers and deputies do? Well, they treat that like an active shooter and come into the area like they need to stop the killing. Well, that's that's a complete misdiagnosis of that problem. That thing needs containment. And, you know, armor, that's what they need to get there. Not everybody rushing into the area to 
you know, it's not a traditional active shooter. It's just another misdiagnosis. And the problem is this, this term active shooter, active killer, or mask up, whatever you want to call it is it's causing us these, these issues. You know, what, what happens when it's not active anymore? Now, what is it? The term is practically useless at that point. Um, so I don't know what the answer is, but we've got to, we've got to come up with something else. Yeah. I don't know if, um, you know, in the early stages, you're going to know the difference anyway, between the two gangbangers in the bar shooting it up because every active shooter that we've had, it's like, it always comes in as multiple suspects and it's not, it's like one dude, right? It always comes in as that. So you're not gonna be able to differentiate. If you hear multiple suspects and you go, Oh, it's, it's, it's that's not an active shooter. It's just, you know, two gangbangers you know, shooting at each other. It's like, that's not, that's not going to be helpful. So I'm not sure you're going to be able to know the difference. So how do you, without knowing the difference or knowing you won't know the difference, decide what response protocol is appropriate. Yeah. And the problem too, Kevin is, is you'll get officers on scene who will misdiagnose it. They'll just, they'll, they'll, you know, you and I might know it's a gang shooting, but you get some one year, six month cop that shows up and he might call out active shooter simply because of his experience level, her experience level. So a lot of that I think has to do with it as well. And that's momentum. who's showing up to the, who's showing up to the party. Is it somebody that's been on 10 years, but that's not one in our patrol ranks right now. We've got that gap. We've got a lot of one to three year cops, then nobody. We've got a couple of 10 year cops. Um, that's kind of changing in some places across the country, but for the most of us, that's the norm. It's all under, some of us all under a year on a graveyard ship. So yeah, I was gonna, just to, to Kevin's point, it's uh, a lot of it has to do with the location. Like where is this event occurring and, and who are the available targets? So, uh you know the the shootout between gangsters in a residential neighborhood very 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 few uh in fact uh, other than a, a couple you know house parties uh that were shot up uh, are uh, active shooters that have occurred in residential neighborhoods so then when you're looking at your commercial areas is it this is something happening at a, a government building is it as is it at a school is it at a business that's open to the public you know what time of day it uh, is it is this a um, is this a special event, sporting event, uh, concert, something that like those environmental factors should should play into that uh, decision making and the assessment as far as what the threat is and what's actually taking place. And you know, um, I think it's Dayton, Ohio, comes to mind uh, where the guy's kind of in the, the downtown bar district and starts shooting. He's only shooting for about fifteen seconds before he's engaged by cops, uh, but you know, dozens of victims in that 15 seconds. And it was a very short amount of time to have to make a decision, but it, it was indiscriminate fire at the available victims that were out there. Uh, similar to Gilroy, 45 seconds uh, at the, the garlic festival uh, or thereabout before that suspect was uh, engaged. So it's, there is an element of, you know, where is this happening and who are the uh, accessible uh victims when this is happening and and is it sustained yeah very true and uh before we wind up uh just a couple things uh because i know everyone's got to go and i really appreciate your time and kevin i appreciate you being here too uh i know that your your problems up there are similar to ours but sometimes different uh because not everyone's carrying a gun everywhere they go uh, up there but but tactically the principles are always the same and uh, i've always appreciated your perspective and and being a student uh, of the craft so before we leave 
let's talk a little bit about where. So the goal here of this discussion was for folks listening to go back to your shop and have these discussions with your with your team, with your patrol team, with your with your SWAT, whatever team you're assigned to, and and talk about what these look like and what they think about. But in reality, to be a student of the profession, there's a lot of resources out there for you to learn from. There's a lot of things you can do today to learn from these events. And, and the first, probably the, the foremost one just came out was the U.S. Department of Justice uh, FBI's active shooter incidents in the United States in 2020 report. It gives you the stats. Um, it's a pretty uh, exhaustive document. Um, Chris is showing it here. He's already printed it out. Killed thousands of trees. Um, and where you live, there's no 2021. trees. 2021. Sorry. 2021. Um, I did say 2020, didn't I? Sorry. 2021. You've got you've got alert. The Texas State University uh, program that gathers the data, and I want to say back in, I think 2013. They were named the National Standard and Active Shooter Response Training by the FBI. So they have a lot of data on, on these kind of events that, that, that we can learn from. There's after action reports from all over the world that you can study and apply to where you're at. And interestingly enough, Kevin's in Canada. They have uh, a lot less active shooters than us. They have uh, a lot of... Uh, what's the term you guys call it, Kevin? Your domestic violence, kill the whole family, commit suicide type of a deal. Family annihilation. Family annihilation, which is yeah. very very descriptive, man. Like the second you said, I'm like, oh yeah, we. I don't know that we call it that, although we should. But very very big problem for all of us, right? And in a dangerous deal when you get there, and when do you go in? When do you not go in? Barricade, not barricade. What's the data say? One shooter, two shooters. What's the data say? So, so I think gotta, I think you just answered your own question. Where do you start the conversation? You take that document, you talk about it with your team. You understand what some of the trends are. Obviously, uh, it's been all over the media. The active shooter events basically doubled from uh, 2020 to 2021. And uh, you, you look at the common trends. It helps dispel some of the myths. So you have a better understanding of what this problem is. Uh, and then you start formulating a response one of the things that was uh modeled to me as a brand new cop uh the sergeant would be like hey i'm at this location and i i'm in pursuit going eastbound where are you going to respond to you're going to try and go to where i'm at now are you going to try and anticipate where the suspect's going to go like you know start running through those decision making exercises uh, so you have a sort of a pre-planned course of action, or you've already thought about what some of the options are. So you're not fighting your own mental processes when you lose 100 IQ points when one of these events kicks off. You already have uh, some idea about how you want to proceed. So yeah, I would I would start with uh, understand your policy, know what's expected uh, from your department policy for the uh, active killer events. Uh, or uh, critical incident response, and then then look at the stats. You can spend uh, a couple good briefings having conversations about just those stats. And from a supervisor perspective, you get to do a temperature check on uh, you know the officers that you have if you don't already know. You know depending on the size of the agency, you may never work with any people before. 
and you can tailor it from there. Bring other people in that have had the experience uh, in your agency. Um, plenty of videos that are out there that uh, break these things down. And uh, if you have uh, a couple of go-getters in your team, sign them one of those uh, police foundation uh, incident reports that Trav mentioned and have them bring back and present it. There's lots of meat on the bone as far as uh, what you can take away from these incidents to prepare your team going forward. But I, I would start there. You know, just to jump on, I think one of the most important exercises we can do is we always tend to do it the same way. We say, okay, guys, let's do a tabletop exercise. Uh, you know, there's an active shooter at school X. Let us tabletop the steps we're going to take in order to be successful on that day. And that's, well, it's not easy because sometimes we can identify, you know, gaps in our knowledge or training or whatever, but we can imagine a very compelling, coherent narrative that gets us to get the bad guy. If you ask, well, how could this file fail? How could this operation fail? That's a nebulous question. It's not cognitively easy. And we tend to gloss over areas of failure. So uh, one tool, and I read this from uh, Dan and Chip Heath's book um, called Decisive. Uh, it's you, you start off with failure. Say, okay, guys, we went to an active shooter and uh, you know, the suspect was able to barricade and, and, and you know, it was out of school and he, he killed more kids. Uh, how did we fail? And then you go back and do like a post-mortem, like a pre-mortem post-mortem about how you failed. And that makes it much more realistic. You can sink your teeth into it and you can identify, oh, well, we actually don't have any breaching tools in the car. We actually don't train our patrol guys in breaching. You know, we've, our SWAT guys have leg bags. That's great. They're not going to be there for 45 minutes. Like it's, it's, it's less nebulous and more coherent and you can identify more areas of, of failure. And I think we need to be more preoccupied with failure rather than you know the school of wishful thinking of when we're going to somehow rise to the occasion on game day we know we're not there's uh there's lots of data that says you're not so uh it's a compelling case that you're not yeah it's a very compelling <laughs> case that says you are not going to rise to the occasion and uh and yet uh especially the higher you go in rank and the more you plan the the a lot more wishes and hope get in those plans than uh than when you're operational and you see uh, those failures from day to day. Uh, my favorite shift ever supervising as a sergeant or lieutenant was graveyard weekends because they're a bunch of go-getters. It's exhausting because they do crazy stuff, crazy stuff, but it's great because they want to learn. They're not bitter. They're not angry. Like, hey, show me what to do. But if you don't pay attention, they do some weird stuff, right? And then you get removed from that and you forget that operationally things fail on a regular basis. And then you, you have this expectation that we're going to do this on paper and that's exactly how it's going to work in real life. And anybody who's been involved in a sports team know that that's, that's not how it works. We go out and we do the basics every day really well all the time because that's, that's what makes us smooth. That's what makes us fast. That's what reduces friction. So just wanted to say thank you. I appreciate you guys taking the time. I know you're all busy. Kevin, thank you for uh, spending the extra money on long distance uh, tonight. And uh, I look forward to seeing you at the at the Cato conference this year. And uh, Chris, thanks for joining us. And Travis, I appreciate your time. Again, the goal here is just to kind of have a discussion about some of the lessons that our, our brothers and sisters before us have already learned and, and to stimulate that conversation and what I I really hope is a more positive conversation than just prematurely uh, second guessing 
uh, things when we don't have all the facts in. There's plenty of lessons that we already haven't learned um, that are out there that we can learn today with a quick search of the internet and perf and all these other after action reports. And, and maybe we focus on those. Thank you for listening to the Cato podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.